welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for coming back. Goodness gracious, it's been like two months since I published a podcast, since I last pod spoke with you pod people. And uh, I just realized that uh, the fact that people are still listening to this show after me going dark for like eight weeks is, is it's impressive. So I'm proud of you guys. Well done. Well, what way to pull through for me. Uh, but seriously, I do apologize for having uh, gone quiet these last uh, two months. It's been kind of an interesting time for me personally, for my family, uh, transitional period to say the least. And uh, it hasn't been terribly conducive to producing these podcasts. And um, it's been uh, it's been difficult. It's been difficult to schedule these conversations. It's been difficult tec- technically, uh, but we must persevere, of course, because the world is uh, a pretty crazy and pretty messed up place right now. And I feel like there's so many things to discuss. And I had to kind of get back on the horse, as it were, even though my situation is still somewhat in flux. And so I say all of that as a little bit of a disclaimer up front, uh, because as of now, there are certain things that are going to be out of my control, probably for the next couple of episodes that you're hearing my voice here. Uh, so I will apologize in advance if you hear a train, if you hear uh, police and or uh, first responder sirens, if you hear a screaming baby in the background, all of these things are entirely possible and there's really not a lot I can do about them. So I will just ask everyone to uh, kind of bear with me while we, you know, what, what, what do I, what can I say? While I try to uh, get myself situated into a quiet space, hopefully in the coming weeks. So, but I do thank everybody for continuing to support the show and continuing to support Counterpunch. I think it's really important. You know, Counterpunch is a very unique place online. Uh, it will, it will oftentimes run controversial articles, controversial subjects. It will, it will touch a lot of emotional buttons. It will uh, pour salt in your proverbial wounds. It will be provocative, it will be exciting, and it will be well worth uh, being a project that you support. I support Counterpunch, even though I do produce this podcast. I'm also a donor. I'm also a subscriber to the magazine, and I urge everybody to consider doing that as well. It's a great way of uh, being part of supporting independent media, something that, given all of the censorship and all of these different things from, you know, the attack on net neutrality to the, you know, to the alleged censorship through Google and other search engines, all of these issues, I think, are really front and center now, particularly with the insanity going on in Washington and, and the Trump administration. So uh, again, I think Counterpunch is well worth your time. Uh, anyway, uh, with all of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest today uh, for this very special comeback episode of Counterpunch Radio, welcoming back Steve Horn onto the show. Steve's been on the show, I think, at least once, maybe twice. I forget exactly. But Steve is, I, I believe, one of, one of the best uh, independent uh, freelance journalists that we have working today in the U.S. He covers so many vital topics, particularly uh, in the realm of environmental concerns, but also corporate corruption and a whole lot more. You can find his work on Desmog blog. He's also uh, recently started a collaboration with the Young Turks Investigates, doing a series of uh, very important articles with them. Follow him on social media, Facebook, Twitter, you know the deal. Steve Horn, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. 
good to be back on for your return episode. And uh, just want to say also I'm a huge supporter of Counterpunch and do encourage people to uh, donate if they can. I have been uh, a don- uh, subscriber and donator for years as well. It's one of the best sites out there. Great. Thanks for that, Steve. And uh, yeah, I feel like I'm like some kind of, uh, you know, aged rock star on a uh, <laughs> on an ill-fated uh, reunion tour. But yeah. in any event, uh, you know, we're almost at 100 episodes, so I guess I can say that. Uh, any, well, who cares? People, you're just telling me to shut up in your minds, I know. Steve, <laughs> let's talk about some very important stuff right now. We got crazy crazy developments in washington i hear i hear supposed liberals waxing poetic and waxing nostalgic for george w bush and the bush administration you know those halcyon days of george bush you have republicans attacking a republican president you have democrats lauding republicans who attack a republican president it seems totally freaking insane and i guess the latest uh version of this insanity the latest incarnation of that has to do with uh with with senator flake jeff flake so tell us a little bit about what's happened with flake what did he say why is this cause such an uproar and what do you make of this and why the hell is it even worth talking about steve <laughs> well so so jeff flake uh probably most listeners know made a pretty big scene this week, uh, making a retirement speech uh, on the Senate floor in which he basically said, uh, quote unquote, enough in terms of other Republicans uh, and not standing up to Donald Trump uh, in terms of what I think is the most important here is what he discussed was his behavior, which is something he said eight times in the way that Donald Trump conducts himself. If you look at the, the speech, uh, policy is hardly mentioned at all, except for in the areas of free trade and immigration. Uh, besides that, there was really no substance policy-wise, which I found as an opportunity to be like, okay, well, I was already interested in this guy Jeff Flake as a backstory because he wrote a book, kind of made his first big splash, published a book that he kept quiet and just published uh, back in August uh, called Conscious of a conservative, which is named after Barry Goldwater's book that he wrote decades ago. Um, And basically in this book, he says that it's time for the Republican Party to get back to being a a conservative party in in the image of Barry Goldwater. Um, Important, this whole Barry Goldwater thing is important, as I'll explain in a second. But so Flake's been in the news for a while, and he caught my attention that first time a couple months ago. And then with this speech, uh, he basically retired uh, while he was in the middle of a big uh, primary battle uh, in which he statewide he's polling at 18%, so it wasn't looking good. And so the way that I see this, just as from a political perspective, is this is basically him just looking for an out. Um, you know, he knew he saw he saw which way the wind was blowing, and. Uh, he might genuinely believe, he probably genuinely believes the things he says in terms of he disagrees with John, Donald Trump's behavior, uh, et cetera. But that said, this was a very political calculation. But I think that the more important thing is the way that this speech was received. And that is, you know, among liberals, among the establishment, that this was sort of the voice of, you know, a statesman of you know of a of a lion of the Senate, if you will, someone who was 
out there kind of speaking to the best of our consciousnesses. But I think that what we have to look at is who, like, who is this guy, right? Like what, where did he come from? Uh, what policies does, did he support during his couple of decades in the United States Congress? What, what did he do before becoming a congressman? Almost none of these questions are, were asked uh, and, and really raised by, you know, basically almost any of the media that I saw. There was some people who criticized him in, in terms of why did it take him so long to come out and uh, criticize Trump? Why did it take two years? That sort of thing. But there really hasn't been much out there of, okay, who is Jeff Flake? So what I did is really just through the lens of climate change and energy and environmental issues, environmental justice issues, because uh, that's what I write about for the Smog blog. What has this guy been all about during his time uh, in Congress? And so that's sort of what I did. Right. Example. And 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 the issue, and this is obviously what you're raising, um, you know, at, at at a very basic level, is that the response from the you know the, the the pundit, you know, the peanut gallery of pundits and so forth has been, well, you know, not only is this the conscience of the Republican Party, but that this was an incredibly courageous opening mm-hmm. opening salvo of some kind of uh, you know no holds barred you know free for all within the Republican Party that the Republican Party is so deeply divided and potentially at, you know, in, in sort of a civil war type of uh, scenario. Now, I 100% disagree with that analysis, but you do hear that from certain quarters. And so what I found particularly interesting about your analysis, though, Steve, is that when you actually break it down from the perspective of policy, it doesn't seem that Flake is really all that far away from Trump at all. If if anything, the only difference is merely uh, one of presentation, one of style, one of mm-hmm. uh, surface-level kind of superficial politics rather than anything substantive because at, a, at the deeper level, Trump and Flake are pretty simpatico, aren't they? Yeah, and I mean, that, that's the thing that some have already pointed out, is that if you look at his actual voting record in the Trump era on bills that, that Trump supported, Flake supported 90% of them. So um, including the day after he made his speech, he voted, or, and the day of, so I'll say the day of, he voted uh, on a bill that, and this was actually not, this, was, this, this lowered his number. I think he was at 92% or something like that, then it lowered it because he voted against sending aid to Puerto Rico uh, after the damage that what took place. With, yeah, right. And what so one of 17 who voted no. There was mostly bipartisan support, but not, not from him uh, for whatever reasons that he cited. But that said, um, you know, 90 percent. So I guess the, the, the big number is 90 percent, including a vote uh that the, the Intercept reported about in other outlets, basically where he voted against uh, – it was a consumer protection type bill where he voted on the same side as Trump on that one. And so did Bob Corker, another guy who's been in the news, uh, the, Senate, the Republican senator from Tennessee. 
Sure, because when Corker and Flake go at Trump, it's certainly not from the perspective of, you know, being opponents of Wall Street, being opponents of, you know, big oil or any of these other things. They go after Trump for all the wrong reasons, because as you just mentioned, that bill regarding consumer protections, I mean, this is essentially the, the you know, the legislation that would have protected the right, the, the legal rights and the legal recourse that people have to go uh, after banks and other predatory lenders. And, right. and, and so forth. And so, again, I mean, you don't even have to drill down very deep to find that that all of these right wing degenerates are pretty much on the same page. It's really just a matter of whether or not you want to openly uh, advocate for pussy grabbing and things of that nature. You know, I mean, that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. And yeah, I think that uh, I mean, the, the, the example of Flake, you could probably repeat the example with Corker or um, almost anyone. Obviously, George W. Bush, we know what his track record was as a as a president. Oh, was and, he a bad guy? I forgot now. <laughs> he, he wasn't very nice, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so my piece basically lays out, I think, that I'll just a couple highlights of Flake just to sort of show what he has done up until this point. Is, um, well, he started his career before he became a congressman. He was doing what he describes as aid work in Namibia. But actually what he was doing at that time was lobbying for a subsidiary of the mining company, Rio Tinto. Um, And he was actually also lobbying, came back to the United States sometimes and was lobbying against sanctions bills for apartheid South Africa, which he's denied that he was a uh, supporter of apartheid South Africa. But the record shows that he actually testified at a Utah Senate hearing uh, against sanctioning South Africa during that time. So that was sort of how he got his start. And then uh, eventually he started a, or didn't start, I don't know if he started it or if he was the, at least was the executive director of this, of a think tank called the Barry Goldwater Institute, which I sort of mentioned the whole weird relationship between him and, and Goldwater and the affinity for Goldwater. Well, he, actually ran a think tank uh, that was named after Goldwater, which is part of the state policy network. It's one of the uh, member organizations. Um, and at that time, he was a major opponent of, pu- of public schooling uh, in the state of, so the Barry Goldwater Institute, I believe, is uh, either in Arizona or, U- I think it's Arizona. So uh, so he was a major opponent. So that's kind of how he cut his teeth politically was, basically fighting against public schooling and uh, doing the the lobbying for a mining company in Namibia. And then from there, he ran for Congress, and his record has been basically 100% on the side of the oil and gas industry, 100% in favor of mining companies in Arizona, including clashing with Native American tribes. Uh, So the record is pretty sorted if you actually just do a little bit of research look at the bills that he supported look at some of his record and yet he's being championed as this consciousness of the republican party and a potential you know this next until he retires at the end of this congressional session so for the next uh you know year and a half or so as someone who will clash with donald trump but my guess is when push comes to shove and when policies are actually voted on. They'll be on the same side basically almost all the time. 
Yeah, I mean, Jeff Flake as a senator is basically the, you know, is the senatorial equivalent of wah, 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 you know, like he's it's it's the most anticlimactic clash with Trump that you could imagine. There really is no clash here. I think that if again, if anything, this is just really just political posturing, trying to score points and trying to salvage something out of what was undoubtedly going to be his political undoing. I mean, what one thing Trump has done is he has opened the door for even more reactionary, even further right-wing extremist kind of candidates. I mean, Roy Moore in in Alabama is an obvious one, but there are other ones as well. And and, and these are the type of candidates who can fashion for themselves, you know, fictional though it may be, fashion for themselves the sort of anti-establishment caricature and sort mm-hmm. of run with that and and those are precisely the kind of candidates that somebody like Jeff Flake can't beat. So if anything, he's kind of looking at this and saying, well, either I'm going to lose to some insane nut job or I can build up my reputation by attacking one of the most obvious targets the, you know, the the American body politic has ever produced, Donald Trump, and score some political points for myself, probably land myself a cushy lobbying job with some neocon group and uh you know make my way from there and i think that that's what's happening now the what i wanted to talk to you about now though and 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 this is i think where because some of what we've been saying is somewhat obvious i think but one of the places where i think there is a misconception and i want to get your take on it is there is there really a divide within the republican uh party or within the right wing of of you know american politics is there really a divide here is there an ideological divide is there a foreign policy divide is this you know so-called division that so many people are, are are touting is this real or is this really just a manufactured kind of media meme? I would certainly argue the latter, but I kind of want to hear how, how you view that. I would agree with you. I think that the, the one divide that has that existed in predating the Trump era was there was there's been some split between the sort of the paleoconservative, like the Rand Paul, Ron Paul camp, which is not a very big camp at all in terms of representation in Congress. There there has been some like a more like traditional libertarian split off, I guess you could say, compared to the, the more establishment or whatever you want to call it, uh, of the Republican Party. You know, Trump came along a lot of people think, oh, this is a new you know, kind of a new version of the Republican Party. There are some people in his camp and as the analysis goes, there are the the more establishment Republicans like Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, I guess Jeff Flake, John McCain, et cetera. But I think that it still comes back to the same exact thing we're talking about is Jeff Flake is is just symbolic of that whole quote unquote divide, which I think is really not happening. And that is that when push comes to shove on policy issues, on regulatory issues, they're pretty much exactly on the same page. They're not exactly going to war with one another over most policies there are you know some things along the margins in terms of like you know look at looking at health care there have been you know as would happen within the democratic party or on any at any big policy there's going to be fights uh, in terms of some of the small details but on on the big themes they're still really on the same page and the last thing i'll say is that if you look at 
who's in the actual Trump White House and who's in who's running the agencies. These are all people who are either have a you know big business background, big oil, Wall Street, uh, big ag, etc., big agriculture, or else they are people who came from the establishment of the Republican Party, like Nikki Haley, um, Rick Perry, uh, Ryan Zinke, who's running the Department of Interior, etc. So really, I think that it's way overblown and overhyped for outlets like MSNBC and CNN uh, to you know create drama where drama doesn't really actually exist on the fine points of of policy. Well, and also there seems to me that there's actually a bit of sort of projection going on here because I do think that uh, one could make a much stronger case for there being an actual divide within the Democratic Party. Uh, certainly, I think that Bernie Sanders and the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, is at least, uh, you know, in, to some extent in revolt against the mainstream, you know, uh, neoliberal center of the Democratic Party, at least to an extent greater than anything we're seeing within the Republican Party. Now, that, you know, that being said, I'm, I don't hold out all that much hope for any wing of the Democratic Party doing much of anything productive. But be that as it may, I think that ideologically, there's much more of a divide there than in the Republican Party. And again, I, I think that the only argument one could make for uh, a real divide on the right would be that if you, you would have to have believed the things that Trump and Bannon were saying, you know, things like protectionism, things like, you know, America first and anti-neoliberalism and being against regime change and being against foreign interventions and all of this stuff, all of this claptrap that Trump was spewing that, you know, I and many others were saying this is all BS, this is all nonsense, he's lying about everything and as soon as he's president, he's going to conduct policy in the exact same way and that's precisely what what's happened and it's not simply that the you know the swamp swallowed up Trump it's that Trump is a swamp creature Trump is uh, uh you know in many ways an embodiment of the worst aspects of the swamp and i think that any right-minded person knew that from the very beginning yeah i think i think that's right and um i think that once he picked his cabinet and you saw the pieces starting to be put together it, you could read the tea leaves from there i mean i, I think that uh one interesting little sidebar, though, is that despite all of that, uh, you know, Bannon is still out there saying that there's these globalists in the White House and they're preventing uh, a quote-unquote nationalist agenda. And I'm just kind of curious, like, <laughs> what do you make? Because that's another big, big overall theme is in the media, there's talk of Bannon has so much power and he's kind of helping shape and push the Republican Party in a certain direction. He's I'm not, just curious. He's, uh, not push, he's not pushing the Republican Party. He's not pushing Trump. What he's doing is he's pushing the he's pushing a very important constituency of the right wing base, and that is the conspiracy mongering white nationalist fascist far right element that has become so dominant in uh, you know our collective consciousness these last eighteen months or so. You know, I remember back to two thousand you know six seven eight uh, when I first heard 
heard, well, I guess it would have been like 2005 or six when I first heard of Alex Jones, right? Alex mm-hmm. Jones was a crank, right? This is a conspiracy theory guy who was on the radio out of Texas who had finally gotten some kind of syndication deal. And I heard about him through 9-11 truth videos and all kinds of other, you know, avenues. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever, you know, there, he has some kind of cult following and that's it. But if you, if you see this sort of progression of these things over the last number of years, this has gone, if not mainstream, as close to mainstream as can get. We're talking millions upon millions of people who are tuning into InfoWars, who are following Breitbart, who are in that sort of far-right, conspiracy, white nationalist, fascist milieu. And so Bannon, in, in one sense, is sort of shepherding that huge constituency and sort of you know, playing this kind of bait and switch with them. No, no, no. See, it's not that Trump has gone back on every promise that he made. He's not stabbed all of you in the back and played you like fools. It's that the establishment and the deep state and the military guys and all of the rest of them, they're all conspiring against him and me and us, right? That's the idea is you're keeping a cohesive whole of a demographic together on a paranoid delusion. And that's really what Bannon is playing off of. And he knows that he can play it so well because they desperately need to believe that they weren't played like suckers. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I, I that's one analysis. The other, you know, often the one that you often hear is the Obama is a, is a very true believer in the cause he's not just like a like a ringleader in the way that you described he actually truly believes in what he's saying 100 percent, and that's why he's pushing this way um well they don't have to be those don't have to be mutually exclusive he could he could be you know he could be a true believer i mean he's a fan of julius evola and you know these other you know fascist thinkers and, and 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 schmidt and and uh dugan and all of the rest of these guys uh so i have no i have no problem believing that 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 he is genuinely you know of that mindset but at the same time he's 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 a political operator. He's not a philosopher. He's not a, you know, uh, an ideologue in the real sense of the word. He's a political operator and he's a media manipulator and that's his function. And I think that I I don't remember who said it, but some some uh, journalists said it best that Bannon is much more powerful outside the White House than he is in the White House. And I think that ultimately that's really what we've seen over these last number of months is that Bannon has kind of left the inner circle uh, in Washington to take on a much more influential role outside of it. Yeah, I'm always still in Washington, but yeah, I see your point. Yeah, with the with the role that he's playing at Breitbart. I mean, yeah. how else how else is Trump going to win another term? Explain right. to me, explain to me just demographically how Trump could possibly win an election if he can't deliver the conspiracy theory, white nationalist, fascist, far right. He has to have that demographic because he knows that he can't count on, you know, full consensus from the center right. And he knows that any delusional, uh, you know, progressive minded working white working class people have long since abandoned him. So he really has to have the far right and there's only one way to do that and that is to consolidate it and that's what bannon's doing for him 
Mm-hmm. And that's the base that they're most concerned about keeping. Yeah, and at, the, and, and at the same time, and at the same time, they're smart enough to know that the Democrats are losers. You know that they're losers, and they've got and they've learned no lessons from 2016. If anything, they're they've learned the wrong lesson, and the Democrats are setting this whole thing up for Trump to win with an even smaller base of support than he had in 2016, which was already a pretty significant minority of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is this is uh, this is the kind of politics that's almost it's almost difficult to comprehend the stupidity of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. Oh, it, it is a little hard to believe that this is the state of play. But I mean, we'll, we'll uh, I guess what 2018 will be an interesting prelude to 2020. Well, and 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 again, I mean, I, I just read a report uh, that the Democrats are hemorrhaging. Uh, fundraising. I mean, they're hemorrhaging. So you have the most unpopular Republican president, maybe in history, uh, completely, you know, blundering his way through every single day in office. And the Democrats, not only are they not growing, they're actually losing support. Now, what does that tell you about A, the Democrats, and B, the so-called capital R resistance? I mean, these things are are like media chimeras. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll say is I, I have heard that, uh, or at least read that it's not always the best indicator of the money pouring into the DNC just because the system is so much more fueled now by super PACs and by outside forces that money flowing into the party coffers isn't 100% indicative, but at the same time, still a lot of money is pouring into the Republican Party. So, um, yeah, I think that it's still fair. I think it's a fair way of looking at things is if you compare those two. Obviously, there's tons of super PAC money on the Republican side, too. But despite that, there's still a lot of money in the general coffers of the RNC. So Now, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, though, is that um, it seems like, you know, when we talk about Trump as, you know, the reality TV president, I think of him, I think of him as almost like, you know, the, the, you know, it's like he dangles, dangles the shiny object in front of the stupefied American public and, 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 you know, pundit world. And at the same time, really does some pretty devious shit every single day. Let's talk about a couple of these devious things that Trump has done. Who are some of these people that he has nominated into very important positions? I know you've re- you've recently written about uh, a very prominent climate denier who is now in one of the key positions, uh, you know, in terms of environmental issues in Washington. Tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about who that is and why this is important. And then, if you want, from there also, tell us about uh, you know the 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 man from the Bill Mill, the man from Alec, and where he is and what. He he's doing for trump yeah so a couple weeks ago the the white house named the trump white house named kathleen hartnett white to head up the council on environmental sorry the council on environmental quality or cvq and this is a position that requires senate confirmation so she isn't actually in the position yet i will require a senate vote but that said this is someone who's at least in the kind of the energy environmental media world, has long been considered a front runner to assume this position. She served on the Trump campaign uh, in the capacity of an economic advisor alongside another key figure. His name is Stephen Moore. He is an economist. Uh, you call him an economist uh, for 
uh, the Heritage Foundation um, and and plays other roles. He's been around for a long time, been involved in Alec and that sort of thing. So Stephen Moore and Kathleen Hardner White, most recently, she's been in the news because those two co-wrote a book um, that was basically a, steeped in climate change denial. Was very supportive of fracking in that book. Uh, the two of them claim that fracking can create millions of jobs and generate $50 trillion of revenue, even though the Department of Labor numbers say that at its peak, uh, the oil and gas boom has created 170,000 jobs. So it's still a lot of jobs, but not, not millions of jobs. And so that's sad, just a little bit more about like where did she come from before co-writing that book with Stephen Moore. So Kathleen Hartner-White kind of served in a similar position under then-Governor Rick Perry in Texas. Uh, she was the chair of the Texas Council on Environmental Quality, or TCEQ. And in that position, she actually was very controversial, even in the state of Texas, for some of the things she was doing. For example, uh, she championed a coal-fired power plant in the Dallas area that was uh, opposed by most people in the Dallas area. And she also, I think one of the most telling things that she did while she was at TCEQ was even, so the Bush EPA was doing a study of radiation that existed in Texas and in, in the water in, in an area of Texas that the TCEQ also had jurisdiction over. And so EPA came to some conclusions and what Hartnett White did, as was revealed uh, in an open records request by a reporter some, you know, during the time when she was at the TCEQ, basically showed that she was kind of downplaying those numbers and uh, cutting the fat off the top to make it look not as bad as it was, which, um, as I wrote an article, uh, what, during the Bush era, there was actually a guy who was the head of the Council on Environmental Quality for the White House, Philip Cooney, and he came from a background of working for the American Petroleum Institute as a lobbyist and lawyer. But during his time at, at uh, CEQ for the White House, he did kind of something similar to Hartnett White when she was in Texas. And that is uh, he was basically editing reports on climate change to make the conclusions seem not as bad as they were. And it, it came out, it was reported by the New York Times, and he resigned. He left and got a job working for Axon Mobile, of course. So there are some parallels between those two. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing that makes Hartner White even a little more, I would say, of a kind of a creepy choice is that she is just an extreme climate change denier, like going so far to say that, that, that carbon in the atmosphere is actually good for the planet, good for humanity, like a source of life. Just like extremely insane things that are in defiance of what basically every single climate scientist is is concluding in their in their science. Um, you know, not not saying this in any you know, kind of quiet way. It wasn't like she was busted saying it on some forum. She's proud to say that she speaks at Heartland Institute gatherings. Um, so I mean, this is just and, and what makes this. I think that we have to talk about what is the position that she is going to assume if she does get confirmed she will be the one who coordinates all environmental climate and energy policy um, an interagency coordination type of job so she will oversee what's called the national environmental policy act or nepa and nepa is sort of a kind of i would call it almost the 
equivalent of what, what the First Amendment is to free speech in the United States, NEPA is to environmental law. That is that it requires any project that is proposed uh, by, by a corporation, for example, um, whether it's, uh, you know, if it's on federal land, for example, like, if, you know, say an oil company wants to drill on federal land, they have to go through the NEPA process. Therefore, they have to write up an environmental impact statement, uh, kind of give the reasons why they think that it can fit within the confines of what the, the, what the law says. You have to lay it all out, and it gives you know the, the public a chance to comment on it, go to hearings, that sort of thing. Uh, this is a law that passed in the 1970s, and she will be running that process. She'll be overseeing the NEPA process. So this could, I mean, for a long time, the oil and gas industry, the coal industry, and other extractive industries have uh, wanted to either undo or largely curtail the NEPA process. Now they have someone who's running it who is very sympathetic to that particular cause. So I think that this is a, this is a really key hire. It wasn't, I, w- I would say it was covered, but really not, hasn't really been contextualized the way I think it deserves, and that this is a pretty horrifying person to be running uh, this particular, I mean, it's not an agency, it's an actual interagency coordination job. So this, I mean, it's a person with a background who is completely opposed to basically the entire premise of the creation of the position, which came from the passage of the National Environmental Policy Act in the 1970s. Yeah, she's a, she, she's now going to be a chief bureaucrat whose job is going to be to make sure that corporations uh, find any way to get around any piece of environmental legislation that exists that limits their ability to do what they want. I mean, basically, she's an errand boy for the fossil fuel industry, or errand uh, girl, I guess, for the fossil fuel industry and uh, for all sorts of other, uh, you know, uh, environmentally harmful industries. Now, I think that I'd like to contextualize it even further, though, by kind of placing her appointment in the context of also seeing Pruitt at EPA and Zinke at Interior. Now you have sort of this triad of, uh, you know, deeply reactionary, anti-environmental uh, figures in every chief position uh, dealing with environmental issues, environmental justice causes, and so forth. What does this mean for the broader uh, policy landscape when it comes to environmental issues? I mean, on the one hand, it's almost self-evident, but I think that there might be some ramifications to this that maybe people aren't immediately thinking of. Well, one one person you didn't mention just off the top is that I, I and I, I mistakenly didn't mention what he's doing now. So she's Hartman White used to work for Rick Perry when he was governor. Now he's running yeah, the Department right. of Energy. So yeah. that's just another one on the roster. And there's others that are in deputy positions or um, kind of sub agency positions, uh, key positions within all these agencies. So that said, um, man. So I think that. In terms of long-term ramifications, it really depends on how far they're willing to push it. If they're just there to uh, kind of not enforce the laws on the books, that is, kind of uh, not do as rigorous of reviews through NEPA or um, push or maybe use laws on the books to push projects forward more quickly in other ways. Um, it really depends on how far they're willing to take the fight um, and if they're willing to really undo rules, and then, then they'll get caught up in courts for years. But I think really 
what all these people are there for right now is not so much necessarily to completely undo the regulations on the books, but just to ensure kind of act as roadblocks to help things go and move more quickly for the industry. And I think what that means is, for example, um, something I've been writing about a lot is um, liquefied natural gas. We'll talk about it more later, but I just, I just want to throw it out there because it does fit within this frame. We'll talk about it in a different yeah. frame later. But for LNG, what what the industry is looking for is for quote unquote small scale LNG. Uh, they've been re- the industry has been really annoyed and outspoken about the fact that it takes a long time to move through the permitting process and. There's a lot of legal layers that have to go through regulatory layers. So what Perry has done is put proposed a rule in which for small-scale LNG, they will be assumed to be, I mean, if the rule goes through and it's it, it, it's legal and legally kosher and all that, basically it assumes under the Natural Gas Act that these small-scale facilities, which are a little bit smaller than traditionally huge LNG projects, but still quite big, basically assumes they're in the quote-unquote public interest under the Natural Gas Act and therefore don't have to go through that NEPA process that I was talking about that Kathleen Cartman-White is the chief overseer of. So that's just one tangible example of something that's moving along. It's been proposed by the DOE now that now it's in the public commenting phase. Ironically, uh, the public public, public commenting phase that they want to get rid of for small-scale LNG. They have to go through one in order to get rid of it. So that's sort of one example. There are several others that are being discussed, at least in the EPA, like the endangerment finding, uh, which is kind of a wonky uh, type of rule that says that uh, uh, if you can point to some danger that that the industry has committed, then you can sue it. Uh, Basically, there are some pushes by some some actors, especially climate deniers, to uh, chop that rule off the books so that you can't bring lawsuits uh, using that, you know, which is EPA law, the engagement finding. So it's another example. There, there are. And I think, and, yeah, and I think that it was also it's also going to make it a heck of a lot easier for uh, any of these agencies to really go through large scale purging. Uh, purging of uh, whistleblowers, purging of right. any scientists, any any people on their staff who might want to bring things to public attention, who might be able to use, say, another agency to publicize something. If you're in the EPA, maybe you'd want to get your findings out to some other agency, somebody you know in another agency. Well, guess what? Their boss is now one of these people. So I think that it, it's sort of, a, it, in a sense, a consolidation of uh, of power ideologically and a consolidation of power of you know for lack of a better word of the lobbyists yeah and the other thing is that um at least in terms of you know one of the things that the epa does we we and of course hardner white still fits within that because she's the coordinator of all this but at, at the epa level um there probably there already was pretty lax lax to begin with but one of the things the epa does have reg, uh, regulatory and congressional authority to do is enforcement. So if there is a bad violator of laws on the books that the EPA has oversight of, you know, most likely under Scott Brewer, none of that is going to be uh, enforced at all. There will be no violations brought. There will be no payments that have to be made by the industry. They're, they're already very small payments. They don't really hurt the companies to begin with. But it's basically just a green light for them to 
emit as much as they want into the atmosphere um, at power plants, for example, or, or at refineries, and see no enforcement on the side of the EPA, not even mm-hmm. no fear of it at all anymore, at least under the Trump administration. Now, we're, we're we really probably well overdue now for a break. But before we just jump to break, just give us a quick rundown of uh, the the Alec boy that Trump just put into a very important position of power. Who is this guy and uh, what did he do at the Bill Mill that we call Alec and what's he likely to do now in his new position? Yeah, so this was a, this announcement was really not it was not an announcement. It was something that I discovered on LinkedIn because I actually know I've interacted with this guy before. I've covered Alec for a long time, and so um, I've talked to him for stories or tried to talk to him. And you know, he actually does respond in email. Did at the time respond in emails when I was doing a lot of this reporting. So we connected. Uh, I connected with him on LinkedIn, and what happened is I actually got a, a notification, which LinkedIn does sometimes, where if someone gets a new job, they give you the opportunity to congratulate them. So the backstory for this is that. This guy, Todd Wynn, who was named as head of uh, external and intergovernmental affairs at the Department of the Interior run by Ryan Zinke, uh, on LinkedIn is how I found out about that because he put it on his LinkedIn. And, and on his LinkedIn, he says that he started the job in October. So he's only been there for you know maybe two or three weeks, depending on when in October he started. I wrote this story about a week ago. So... Um, I got the announcement that week, so I mean, maybe it's been one or two weeks, uh, two weeks, two or three. But anyway, Todd Wynn, uh, his Alec connection is that he was on staff at the American Legislative Exchange Council, known as Alec, which is a organization that basically gets mostly Republican Party state legislators um, and lobbyists in the same room several times a year at meetings in which they lobbyists basically bring forward what they call model bills that can be introduced in one state house and then replicated elsewhere. So they get voted on behind closed doors at those types of meetings where the public is not invited or allowed to be at all. And these basically these bills that end up becoming legislation and as Alex says, has happened in hundreds of occasions, you know, or over, over a thousand occasions in its history. It's been around since the 1970s. So, that's that's who Alec is. So Todd Wynn, what is his role in Alec? From 2011 to 2013, he was the head of head staff person for Alec's Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force. So any bill um, in 2011 through 2013 that became an Alec model bill, Todd Wynn was the head staff person for that. So if ExxonMobil had a bill that they wanted that to become state law in many states. Um, Todd Wynn would be one of the people at those meetings convening and getting people together at the table, the state legislators and then the, the lobbyists to vote on that bill. So what I said in an article is that, you know, basically this is almost a, a natural next progression in his career. He was the liaison then and he's the liaison now um, in terms of stakeholders uh, reporting who want, who want something done at the Department of Interior, he will be the go-between for Ryan Zinke if, say, the industry wants some kind of policy through the Department of Interior on public lands or in you know offshore drilling or something like that. Todd Wynn will be the one that they now go to. And I think the last thing I'll say about Todd Wynn that's 
of note is that, as I said, he was at Alec 2011-2013. So in between those years, he was actually in a similar liaison-type role, external affairs for uh, the electricity industry or the electric utilities industry for Edison Electric Institute, uh, which is an organization that represents all of the big electricity companies and power companies, coal-fired power, um, natural gas-fired power plants around the U.S. So he was doing that for the past several years, and now, I guess just recently now, he's working for the Department of Interior in a kind of similar external affairs liaison-type role. I should be playing a Lee Greenwood song as you're as you're telling us about this since, you know, as the flag waves majestically and we think how proud we are to live in a country where corporations get to uh, make policy and make the laws and uh, tell us all to follow them. So uh, on that wonderful note, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk more about LNG, liquefied natural gas, what that means, uh, why this is now happening, and uh, what this may mean in terms of uh, U.S. foreign policy, if anything. So um, we'll continue the conversation with Steve Horn on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. at your front door How you gonna come With your hands on your head Or on the trigger of your gun When the law break in How you gonna go Shot down on the pavement Or waiting on death you can crush us, you can bruise us, but you have to answer to Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Steve Horn, and uh, gosh, doesn't it just fill you with such patriotic fervor when you hear about uh, the Trump administration putting in place these fucking Neanderthals into every one of these positions? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I can say those words on my own show, whatever. Anybody got a problem with it? Well, 
you probably stopped listening already. Um, so, Steve, I want to talk a little bit about LNG, liquefied natural gas. You've recently written about it. You touched on it before the break, but um, there's a lot to be said about this because it, it, it is rather interesting. I remember reading an article. I, I want to say it was in The Economist, although it could have been some other publication. This is a few years ago, basically talking about how investments uh, that, that large uh, oil companies had made in liquefied natural gas were a money pit that they were a black hole that these were that these that this was an industry or a sector of the energy industry that would never recoup its initial investment that would essentially uh, cost people their jobs and cost people you know a lot of money and here we are in 2017 and we're seeing massive investment in LNG and I want to know a why why do you think that's happening and B how is that happening in other words, what's happening behind the scenes that's allowing these companies to recoup the money that they invested into this sinking ship? Well, I think that one big change that's happened over the past probably couple of years and really exploding right now is that the the reason why it was a money pit was because at least when those articles were being written that they, they you referred to, uh, basically – LNG was based, it was a contract-based industry in which these LNG carriers would sign really long-term contracts with uh, you know, natural gas companies abroad um, for 20 years is kind of the standard period. And that's a lot of time to kind of commit to sending something like this and thinking, you're looking at a market for 20 years and how much can change in 20 years and um, it takes a lot of capital to commit to that sort of thing. And so um, that's why I think for a while there really weren't many actual export sites getting permits from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and from the Department of Energy. Um, under Obama, there were about three, um, but it took quite a while to get to the first one. It wasn't until 2012, and then there were a couple others after that during his second term. So it's really not that many, three uh, in a big country like this that produces a lot of natural gas from fracking. What's really happened, though, is uh, the LNG market is shifting to more of a spot market uh, in which it's very much more short-term, order by order. Um, and I think that's the direction globally that the industry is moving toward less of a long-term contract and more of a spot market, which has opened up the floodgates in a lot of ways. You're seeing a lot more now um, basically uh, contracts to, you know, being sent into uh, FERC and the DOE. And you're seeing a shift even more in that direction and something I've been writing about for quote-unquote small-scale LNG. So for, as I discussed earlier in the show, um, these standard LNG tankers are huge. They were based on this long-term model, but these small-scale ones are a little bit smaller. They're still really big, but I think the key thing is that they don't have to put in the money to uh, regasify the 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 gas into a liquid form, or the or vice versa. And so it's just taken in the form that it is in a smaller tanker put on the spot market and sent to X, Y, Z country. And then the other big thing that's happened is, so there's this movement towards small scale 
the biggest company out there in the U.S. is named Chenier for LNG. And the CEO of that company has started, has basically created his own startup called Tellurion. And they're really like going all in on this small scale LNG. His name is uh, Sharif Saouki. He was the CEO and founder of Chenier, which is the biggest LNG company in the U.S. Now he has Tellurion. So they're really kind of a pioneer in the small scale LNG. But I think the other thing is, that's happened in the past couple of years that's been a game changer geopolitically and for the LNG industry uh, in the Western Hemisphere, at least, is the expansion of the Panama Canal, which opened up in 2016. Uh, it wasn't really discussed at all because everyone was so caught up in the election, but that was a huge thing that happened in 2016. And so now uh, these LNG tankers can get to market and to Asia in particular so much more quickly than before now that it has a uh, quicker path to that market. So all of these things are happening at once, and I think it's definitely made a huge impact on uh, the LNG impact, especially as it relates to the United States and fracking and natural gas. Well, and and what you just what you just alluded to is one of the things that immediately came to my mind when I read your piece on on this because you know I remember when I was originally researching this stuff like in 2011 2012 uh, you know the the big hurdle at that time and really up until up until very recently was always that LNG was simply not liquefied natural gas was simply not profitable because of the extremely high cost of shipping it. That ultimately shipping LNG versus shipping petroleum products was like night and day because there were all these other chemicals involved. It was a much more intensive process and you couldn't use the same infrastructure. So you had to build separate LNG facilities. You had to build not only, you know, it wasn't like you could just use a refinery, whether it was, you know, Venezuelan crude or Russian or what have you, that this was a very specific kind of infrastructure that had to be really essentially built from scratch. And ultimately, that was one of the major reasons why it was such a cost prohibitive, uh, you know, industry. And now with something like the expanded Panama Canal, where you can use these uh, larger tankers and you can use this different, um, I should say, more modern infrastructure to ship larger quantities. I wonder if that's having an impact on, you know, changing the landscape when it comes to LNG. And then the second second point that I want to make is how much of this is really rooted in politics and international political intrigue because I think that one of the things that gets lost in all of this is the fact that Russia and China and the major players in Asia were all working towards developing their own LNG capacity over the last 10 years. And the fact that that has been expanding over this same time period, I think, probably added to the impetus for these Western companies to get subsidies from the government, to get these breaks and other things to help develop as a means of counterbalancing against what the Russians and uh, you know their immediate geographical neighbors were doing, particularly in the far east of Russia. I think it's Sakhalin Island and mm-hmm. a couple of the other major projects from Gazprom that were coming online over these last few years. I think that there were some people in Washington and elsewhere, strategic thinkers, who were seeing that and worrying. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things about LNG and oil um, that I've noticed is that uh, part of what this has done is actually opened up uh, 
a relationship between the U.S. and China in terms of get the the LNG and now oil going to China, which may mean that they're trying to wean China away from reliance on Russian oil and gas, for example. That I think that might be one of the things at play. Of course, the, there's always there's this ongoing tenuous relationship with China geopolitically as well. But I think that um, at least in the Trump administration, um, he has said that he sees China as somewhat of an ally, of an ally, even though he during the campaign he called it a uh, you know the, the what uh, what was the term he used about oh a currency manipulator right yeah. so uh, there was all of that but I think at the end of the day um, that 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 has sort of shifted and so that that's what's happening uh, in terms of oil and gas the other and, thing I'll note is that, one last thing yeah, sorry, yeah. Forget, <laughs> is that um, Harold Ham who is a major the energy advisor for the campaign. He's the CEO of a company named Continental Resources, which is the biggest driller of oil for uh, in fracking in the U.S., which is different than natural gas. But his company, Continental Resources, is a major driller, especially in North Dakota and the Bakken Shell. They just signed a contract, which they say is an ongoing one, uh, with to export oil uh, to China. And so... I think that was a huge development uh, that hasn't really been covered in the way it deserves yet. It might have even been lost in the shuffle with everything else going on. But that just happened last week where uh, his company, Continental Resources, uh, signed a contract to export its first batch of oil to China. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 again, I think that um, it's interesting we said that about Russia, because I think that, you know, if you watch enough Rachel Maddow these days, you think that, uh, you know, uh, Putin and Trump are like, you know, bosom buddies that are on the phone, you know, talking about their day with each other and so forth on a on a daily basis. But obviously, a lot of these a lot of these sort of, um, you know, international machinations are still very much ongoing. And one thing that you didn't mention that I think is key to this and and maybe even bigger than the worry about Russia and China moving closer together is really the 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 extreme anxiety that uh, elements have in Washington of China becoming a major importer of Iranian oil and Iranian uh, exports because I think that that even more than Russia keeps them up at night because of course the uh, you know the P5 plus one the JC what is it JC POA agreement um, that that was essentially an attempt to, you know, for lack of a better word, normalize Iran economically on the global scene. Now, the translation then becomes Iran becomes a major player, if not a dominant player in Asia uh, in terms of energy exports. And the fear was always that Iranian energy would travel through Pakistan and into China, thereby linking these countries countries uh, economically and that kind of uh, you know integrative process I think that is really what keeps the strategic planners up at night yeah I think I lost you there but uh, let me let, I'm not exactly sure where we lost our connection there Steve but the point I was making was that I think that the strategic planners in Washington really do worry uh, you know as much if not more uh, about the integration processes between countries like Iran Pakistan Turkmenistan some of the former Soviet republics particularly around the Caspian region and their uh, burgeoning uh, energy relations 
relations with China. Certainly, uh, Turkmenistan is a good example of that. But but Iran, I think, is the real prize of all of that. And so it does seem to me that some of these energy policies are geared towards not simply exporting to China for profit, but exporting to China as a means of prying it away from potential Asian, uh, you know, allies and, and, and um, you know, exporters and really kind of forcing the Chinese to make a strategic decision in their own economic best interest. Yeah, and I think that um, you make a great point. The the one add-on I have to it is I have followed Central Asia a little bit, not really that much in recent years, more so maybe about you know four or five years ago. But uh, the U.S. firmly has countries like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan in its orbit at the same time where your point really makes a lot of sense is, at least in terms of Kazakhstan, which is the one I know the, the most, is they have what they call a multi-vector uh, foreign policy in which basically they consider Russia, the U.S., and China all to be kind of equal. They'll play ball with any of them. Um, and I think that um, what's key is one of the, the parts that's not part of Kazakhstan's multi-vector is Iran, even though that's the actual regional power down in that Central Asian area and the one with the most oil and gas. So that's a, that's a good point about bringing Iran into the conversation and uh, them sort of being pointed to by the Trump administration as uh, this, this kind of pariah state, this rogue state, as they point to it as, and as this, this nuclear power that they hope never gets the capacity. So I think that that all has to be in the same conversation um, as this LNG conversation we're having uh, with what the U.S. is doing with this LNG and the same conversation with oil exports. Well, and the other and the other sort of elephant in the room, as it were, when it comes to East Asian energy is the South China Sea. You know, I mean, the South China Sea continues to be one of the one of the global hotspots. You know, obviously the territorial disputes between China and its neighbors. But, you know, under the surface, quite literally in the South China Sea is the fact that uh, that is one of the world's largest untapped uh, energy reserves there under that under the South China Sea. And of course, the Chinese who are looking at that with a tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous uh, desire to exploit that, they're now faced with uh, the reality of uh, probably medium, if not long term uh, oil prices being, you know, more or less stable somewhere between 50 and $60 a barrel and uh, not returning back to the halcyon days of $100 plus. And so now the question for the Chinese Chinese is, do we want to invest hundreds of billions of dollars into developing the South China Sea with all of the infrastructure and all of the political conflicts and everything else? Or can we maybe uh, satiate our need for energy by simply importing it from places like the U.S.? I think that there is sort of this carrot and stick approach. And while the stick is the one that gets so much of the attention with the naval disputes and the the naval exercises and all of the rest of that, I think that maybe the carrot is what we're seeing in terms of energy in China. Yeah, and exactly. And then that goes to Central Asia as well, that multi-vector foreign policy and countries like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan being kind of pulled into the orbit of uh, you know, maybe, you know, obviously exporting some of its oil and gas to to China, um, just all in a way that, to make sure that 
China doesn't start tapping into that South China Sea oil and gas and that the U.S. is still kind of the global cop, as you will, of uh, enforcing uh, the oil and the global oil and gas market. And, you know, a lot has changed in the last couple of years. You and I, I remember back in like 2013 talking about, you know, the the former Soviet republics in Central Asia and the, in the Caspian region. And uh, at the time, Azerbaijan was one of the, you know, hot spots for uh, NATO forces, uh, for, you know, the, the likes of Stratfor and, and, and these types, uh, you know, more or less in the shadowy, quasi-private, quasi-spook CIA world. Uh, they were all, you know, crawling around through the streets of Baku because Azerbaijan was supposed to be this, you know, this breadbasket of energy, you know, the Trans-Caspian projects and all of the rest of that. And in the last couple of years, so much of that has dried up. So many of those investors have left. And wouldn't you know it, magically, Azerbaijan is now uh, chided publicly for human rights abuses. The government there is, the, the Aliyev government there now gets tremendous flack in the Western media. And all of a sudden, they're friendlier with Russia and less friendly with Washington. And, uh, you know, similarly, we see these kind of shifting relations in, in that region, which I think, again, tells you that, that energy really still remains kind of the dominant lever of power there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually didn't really know that about uh, that it had run dry in Azerbaijan. What I did know is that they were having a hard time pulling the oil and gas offshore in the Caspian Sea on the Kazakhstan side of things. And there's there's been these big pronouncements of how much oil and gas there is there, but then there's been struggles to actually get it out of the ground in terms of the engineering and all that. Yeah, that was always that was always the issue. The Aliyev government there was always promising that they could become, you know, they would become the 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 engine that would free Europe from its dependence on Russian energy and that the Trans-Caspian project and all of these different, you know, the Nabucco and all of these different pipelines that they were the future and here we are 5, 6, 10 years later, none of that has come to pass and Azerbaijan has kind of shown itself to be a paper tiger when it comes to energy exports. On the other hand, Turkmenistan has now become a dominant player and a dominant supplier for China. So I think that a lot of these uh, relations that we're seeing, you know, particularly in the context of the of, of you know Trump and the Trump administration, really energy is behind a lot of that. So certainly Tillerson being the Secretary of State, I think that this is all now really a a central focal point as if it wasn't before, but even more so now of U.S. foreign policy. Right. And it's, it's one of those things where even though that is very likely the case, there's absolutely no transparency in terms of day-to-day stuff and, and who the State Department's talking to and how these deals are being brokered and what's actually taking place uh, you know, behind closed doors. So um, it's obviously, I think, going, going back to uh, you know, several years now, the big deal of the, you know, the WikiLeaks and the Chelsea Manning uh, State Department diplomatic cables is that they did allow us to see a lot of what was taking place back in that era. But now we're many years past that things have changed. And we don't really know who all the movers and shakers are. But I think that we can still kind of look at some of the bigger trends and come to some conclusions. It's just uh, I guess it's, it's just too bad that uh, we don't have the the full picture. Yeah, indeed. And, 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 you know, getting back to this question of LNG, I wonder, I mean, 
it's almost it seems like it would be counterintuitive, right? That 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 the oil price has collapsed over the last two and a half years or so, and yet LNG seems to be more profitable than it was before. Other forms of energy are are, are coming online. Certainly, fracking has uh, you know grown and then declined, and now seemingly maybe back on the table for a lot of these companies that had flooded out of the market. Give us your read on the shifting nature of the global energy market. I know you follow it pretty closely. How has that changed? Over over the last 18 months uh, is the new normal in terms of oil price. Has that fundamentally shifted uh, policy and shifted the game or are we actually kind of in for more of the same? I think that we're in for more of the same. I think you hit the nail on the head that uh, industry analysts think that this 50 to $60 is probably where it's going to stay at for quite a while i think that on the natural gas side the price is actually really low as well and exports will actually uh, raise the price of natural gas a little bit on the market so um, i think that that's another reason actually why these exports are taking are going to take place is that uh, from their perspective it's good to have a little bit you know, from a trader's perspective it, um, raising the price will uh, have its own incentives but obviously there's a geopolitical reasons as well, so that's that's also taking place, and I think that the thing to look for is what I think, like you know, the most immediate pressing thing is see what happens with this small scale LNG rule that's moving through the Department of Energy, and if that thing goes through, we're really looking at uh, a bonanza of LNG exports in a different format. Uh, we're going to see, and we're going to see a lot more natural gas in the United States being exported to Caribbean countries, for example, probably a lot more to South America. So it's not only going to be about those mega tankers moving through uh, the Panama Canal and going to Asia, but it's also going to be, um, quote unquote, uh, as the Trump administration calls it, energy dominance in the Western Hemisphere as well. Yeah, indeed. And of course, uh, none of that is possible without the kinds of, uh, you know, policies being implemented by the, you know, the various agencies that Trump has put these, uh, you know, anti anti environment, uh, uh, climate change denying figures in charge of. So, you know, it, it certainly does seem that all of the worst aspects of the Obama administration in terms of policy from the uh, offshore drilling and all of the rest of that are really now in kind of uh, in high gear and overdrive, as it were, during the Trump years. And I realize that's not news to people, but I think the mechanics of how that's actually operating is oftentimes uh, uh, you know, uh, obscured. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, like we started off with flag, I think it's important to kind of situate these people and, and where they were before this. And all of this stuff has happened gradually over time, uh, being pushed by these different groups that these people were part of, like Kathleen Hartnett White or, Ryan or you know not Ryan Zinke sorry um Todd Todd Wynn etc so um it's again like you know at the beginning we opened up talking about Trump and how he's kind of like a natural almost like an outcome of the swamp he is the epitome of the of the swamp in in a lot of ways well I think that these people are these policies they push it's it's uh almost uh 
fully realize that now they are in the positions of power, but it was their advocacy and work that they've done over the years that has made a lot of these things possible to begin with. And isn't it interesting how in a season of extreme climate events of these devastating hurricanes and devastating wildfires and all of the rest of these things happening both in the United States and globally, it does seem that there's not only is there little attention paid to the issue of climate change, but it's almost like these things have kind of overshadowed the fact that we are, you know, accelerating at a breakneck speed towards much, much worse catastrophes in the future that's right yeah i think that that's the big i think if you want to have a big takeaway of all this is that these people that we're talking about are going to be responsible for policies and deregulation um, and, and rules that will indeed accelerate various tipping points and feedback loops with climate change that are already well in place because of things that the United States and other global powers have done and have allowed corporations to do over the past decades. Um, really just what they're going to do is you know, lock in these things and make, um, make it so much worse. Yeah, and, and actually one thing we didn't even mention, and I, I realize we're pretty much out of time already, but one thing that we didn't even mention is the fact that uh, we're now moving into a, a post-ice period in the Arctic, which of course means more drilling, more extraction of energy resources. Yep. It means a fundamental transformation of the uh, stream of investments, both from the United States, but also from other players like Russia and Canada and Norway and some of the other countries that are around the Arctic Circle. Uh, so certainly, you know, all of these things are going to be exponentially, you know, accelerated by things like, you know, ice-free summers in the Arctic. Yeah, and then this economic system really just sees everything, we're what you just discussed, as a business opportunity. The ExxonMobil's of the world, uh, Stad Oil in Norway, uh, Chinese companies, Russian companies, etc. That's, I mean, it, of course, it's a geopolitical contest, um, which in of itself it creates a business opportunity for arms manufacturers and the military-industrial complex. But it's also, at its core, it's a it's a business opportunity for capitalists and for you know capital investors and for these oil and gas industry companies and, and the, the, the contractors who do the drilling and everyone else who's part of the money-making process. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Steve Horn, I want to thank you as always for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Guys, follow Steve's work. It's really top-notch. I think he's one of the best journalists working out there today. Uh, he's regularly published in Desmog blog. You can follow his work there. Also, the the, uh, the the work that he's doing now with the Young Turks investigations, uh, very important, groundbreaking uh, investigative journalism there. Follow Steve Horn on Twitter. Connect with him on Facebook. Facebook and uh, he's a good guy. Follow his stuff. Uh, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Great to be on. Thanks Thanks again for having me. Listeners, thank you as always. Thanks for sticking around, for waiting for me to come back, and I can promise you a whole lot more to come. I got at least uh, a couple of more episodes to put into the can here, and we're going to get back onto our uh, weekly schedule of shows here real soon. So thanks again for sticking with us, and I'll talk to you again real soon.